0: is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are discussing the outtakes for Bo Burnham's Netflix special, Inside. Now, if you haven't seen the outtakes, that's because they've been posted on YouTube and they're not posted on Netflix where the original special was. Um, so this is a little less produced than the Netflix uh, version. Um, maybe a little less cohesive than the Netflix version and has a lot of stuff that was very obviously left out of the final product that went on Netflix. Um, but Bo Burnham released it onto YouTube so that people could watch kind of these like leftover pieces. Now, I did do an episode on the Netflix special Inside, which was episode number four. It's like one of the first episodes I did, so you can go back and listen to it. Uh, And I know in that episode, I spent a lot of time talking about like depression, particularly how depression can manifest in men. So if that is a topic of interest to you, that's a great episode to talk about, uh, to go check out. Now, I'm not going <laughs> to talk about that again because I already have covered it, um, but I think that this uh, particular piece of media does focus on depression as well, so I'm, I will talk about that in in uh, later on in the episode. Now, one thing that I do want to mention before we kind of dive into the content and the meat of the episode itself is that this being released on YouTube, I think, is a very specific choice that Bo Burnham made, uh, and I predict that it may be one of the last things that he ever puts on his YouTube channel. Now, if you're familiar with Bo Burnham's career, you'll know that he started out by making like comedy songs and comedy videos on YouTube. He was like, I think like 16, 15 or 16 when he started posting to YouTube and started to gather quite a bit of a following until he kind of like made it big in comedy And then around 2015, he stopped performing live altogether. Uh, He actually talks about that in the original special. That's where he started having pretty intense panic attacks when he would go on stage. So he took a five-year break from performing and was working on getting ready to come back on stage when the pandemic hit. In the meantime, he has been working on other projects and has been in movies. He directed a movie as well. Um, But his YouTube channel, it was really, like, kind of where he got his start. And if you go to his YouTube channel right now, you'll see that the first video was posted 15 years ago. So that was 2007. That's a really long time ago. And it really represents a shift in the kind of content that Bo Burnham makes. And I think his original videos also show kind of the state of YouTube um, at the time. There were, it was a lot of very independent creators making their own content, just like sitting on their bed in their room. A lot of young people, like teenagers, getting their start. And when YouTube was in that stage, it really was a uh, anyone could make it kind of a place. It, it didn't require a lot of production value, it didn't require a lot of money to kind of get into the game. Like now, if you try to break into YouTube to the point where you would be like sustaining yourself off of it, you are going to have to invest in like camera, lighting equipment, good recording equipment, sets, uh, or like the money for big projects like, um, like Mr. Beast does, right? Where he gives away like millions of dollars. Obviously, you wouldn't jump right into that if you were starting on YouTube, but you you need capital, essentially, to get started on YouTube. But in 2007, you did not. You could really just film yourself with your webcam in your bedroom and and start to build a following. Now, those videos that he posted 15, 13, 14 years ago are not the best. There's some content that might be questionable. Uh, He used to make a lot of very offensive jokes, especially uh like racially tinged content that I think we would now call racism. They were racist jokes. And he's talked about this at length in interviews. He also talks about it in the outtakes. So there is a a section of the um like video where he directly acknowledges that he made a lot of content that he is not proud of and he has chosen to leave those videos up. And in other interviews with him, I've seen him say that he is leaving them up on his channel to demonstrate that people can change and that people can take accountability for their actions. And so that's one of the reasons why I suspect this may be one of the last things that he ever puts on his YouTube channel to kind of cap it at this like retrospective and reflective perspective of saying I acknowledge that those videos were in poor taste, that those jokes were punching down, at, you know, especially as a white man, that he's, like, punching down to, to racial and, and gender groups, um, and that this is kind of, like, the inside, the outtakes kind of, like, caps that era, and his era of being on YouTube and being, I guess you could say, of the people, but um, I think it's more of, like, having no longer having a boundary between yourself and your audience that him no longer posting on YouTube kind of would put up a boundary between himself and his audience that maybe is needed to prevent either the mental health struggles that he's had or to prevent offending someone with, with bad content. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons why it's going to be the last thing. It might be, I don't know, I could be wrong. He could post something again in like 10 years. Um, But it might be one of the last things he posts on his YouTube channel uh, Like his specific channel, not necessarily like appearances he might make on like other YouTube videos. You'll also notice if you do watch the the outtakes all the way through that there are jokes within the way that he designed the look of the video that call out to YouTube. So, for example, there are a few times where it looks like the skip ad button is coming up and uh, it will like count down really fast and then disappear and say like too late. And then you have to watch through an ad, but it's an ad that he's made. Um, there's other, like, it'll pop up banner ads that are based off of, like, obviously fake products that revolve around the jokes he made in Inside in the, the full special. And I think that this is Bo Burnham's way of, like, connecting with his original audience, of, like, pay- paying homage to where he got his start from on YouTube And it reads to me like an inside joke with his audience who will get it. Like the people who watched his special on inside may not have been his audience from the beginning. Like there's a lot more people who can see his content on Netflix because it's a more, I guess, like popular or accessible platform than YouTube, even though YouTube is free. And it's going to be an older audience on Netflix than it is on YouTube. YouTube is a pretty young audience, um, but Bo's audience who's been with him from the beginning are millennials. they so can't migrate they're, they're around his age. And so I thought this was just kind of his like little way of saying like he knows the platform. this is the platform where he got his start. and he's just kind of like shouting it out. I thought that was really cool and it's it you know, you may not get it if you're not like on YouTube or grew up with YouTube in the same way that millennials will do. And I think that this leads into a point that I wanted to make that this, ep- this like, movie or video or whatever you want to call it was really, I think, geared more toward this kind of, like, millennial nihilism that is emerging in this generation. And I say, I think I can speak to this, like, with experience as being a millennial, um, but also with, like, articles that I've seen out and about on the internet <laughs> that talk about how Millennials are really struggling to like find a foothold in society from like an economic perspective and are struggling to like quote unquote meet milestones that our parents and the generations before them had met like buying homes, starting families. Um, And many of us are opting out of certain options that generations before us did not opt out of and are making different choices for our lives. And millennials are getting a lot of hate for that. There's a lot of like jokes made at our expense for that. Um, And there's also a lot of like hand wringing about how millennials are ruining like the wine industry or like whatever those articles are that you may see. And so I think there is this like deep sense of nihilism that's setting into the generation of like, it doesn't really matter what we do everyone blames us for stuff that's happening and we're getting older and it seemed like maybe this would get better as we got older and it's not it's actually getting worse uh and we're no longer the youngest generation right it used to be like people talked about millennials and you could always kind of fall back on the excuse of like well we're young right we still have time and we're still like we're gonna figure it out there's there was like a hope there and now we're not the youngest generation there's two generations behind us gen z and generation alpha I mean, Generation Alpha is like, they're like the actual babies right now, but you know what I mean? Like there's two generations behind us and it's starting to become like apparent that nobody is going to figure this out for us and that we may not figure it out. And so I think there's this kind of like nihilism that settles in. And one of the greatest examples of that is the song Joe Biden, uh, which I'm going to insert a clip of it here. They're really going to make me vote for Joe Biden. How is the best case scenario, Joe Biden? (laughs) They're really gonna make me vote for Joe Biden. How is the best case scenario, Joe? And this song encompasses kind of where Bo Burnham's content has moved to which is this kind of like hopeless concept or not even hopeless, but this nihilistic of like, really, this is it. This is the only option we have. He does this with mental health stuff also, like he'll he'll kind of just sing about or talk about feeling like this is, it's always going to be like this. I'm always going to feel like this. But then he puts it over like a really catchy beat, right? So it's like, you kind of want to dance to the song. Uh, you kind of want to like, you know, bop around to it. But if you really listen to like the message of the song it's like it's pretty hopeless it's pretty like this this isn't gonna get better um and even though there's like four words in the biden song it is kind of like how did we end up here like this is this this is where we're at and how did this happen and i I feel like i don't have any other options except for joe biden right so that's what i mean when i say this like millennial nihilism of like we've been in the world as adults for long enough now like some of us are even in our 40s and we're still coming up against this stuff and it feels like the cycle of history is going faster and faster so that we're like cycling back to things that we just lived through uh and we're not getting a time to catch our breath and so we end up kind of feeling like we're at a dead end and so what do you do you might as well have fun while you're doing it and make some sick beats right (laughs) And I think the psychological toll of that is quite strong for uh, a generation of people. And I and I know it's tough to talk about generations, um, because the the line can be kind of blurry. And obviously, everybody in your age cohort is not the same and isn't impacted by things in the same way. But I think if we talk are talking in like broad generalizations, that millennials are starting to feel worn down by the reality that they live in. It's no one can buy a house. It's becoming impossible to feel like you can have children or even have the ability to make different decisions about family planning. <clears throat> Back to the abortion debate. Um, it's becoming impossible to have a job that you love or you're passionate about, but also make enough money to survive. People are leaving certain industries because even though they're very passionate about the work, they're not able to take care of themselves or their families or support themselves um, or even if they are able to support themselves, they're hitting burnout really quickly. And so there's this, like, psychological toll that I think Bo Burnham really is able to pinpoint in his, co- in his content. And it is specific to millennials. I think for people outside of this generation, his content may not be as accessible or as understandable, And I would love it if I'm wrong. Please let me know if you're a Gen Z or a Gen Xer and you uh, don't feel like an outsider. (laughs) You feel inside this content. Um, But I think especially in the outtakes, this this was apparent to me of like, oh, this was for a specific crowd and he had to cut some of this stuff out to make the full special, which was going to be for more people. And so this is kind of, it's what's left over. It, the narrative of the outtakes isn't as strong as I felt the narrative of Inside was. And I feel the overall tone of the outtakes is darker. There is like a, a sinister energy to it. And there's also something deeply, deeply vulnerable about it. Um, mostly because a lot of what we're seeing are behind the scenes aspects of how he made many of the videos that we see in the full special. So, for example, one of the things we see is he's trying to film the video for 30, where he sings about he was born in 1990, he turned 30 in 2020, and he's like kind of wrestling with with what that means for him. And in the Netflix version, it's very well produced. He's like flashing lights around. The lights correspond to the beat of the music and build with the tone and, like, emphasis of the song. But then on the YouTube version, you can watch, like, I think it's like 12 or 15 different versions of the same shot on the screen at the same time. And he slowly removes each shot as he hits the point where he had to, like, stop because it wasn't working out. And you can see just how much it took. And I'm sure that's not even all of the shots of, like, him trying to practice and figure out how this was going to look. It's just like raw footage and it's really really vulnerable to watch someone like messing up. Or I guess what he would think would be a mistake, right? Cuz we don't know. We're not <laughs> we're not critics. Um but we're watching someone like in this position of figuring himself out, figuring out what he wants to present to the world and we're not supposed to usually see This part. When we watch a comedy special or we watch a movie, we're seeing the finished, polished version of it. And Bo Burnham is letting us see the unpolished, raw footage of a man by himself working his way through the creative process. And it's vulnerable. It's really raw. And there were times where I almost felt like unsettled watching it, of like it almost felt like I was supposed to look away, like I wasn't supposed to see someone in this very vulnerable. Position. And I can say, as someone who provides therapy for patients, it was, it, it could be a very similar feeling of when you're sitting in front of someone who's being incredibly vulnerable with you and you are not vulnerable back, right? As a therapist, when a patient is sharing something with me, I don't go, oh, me too, and then share my life story. My job is to hold the space and bear witness to them as they share and then. From there, develop treatment plan intervention, blah, 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 <laughs> the good stuff. And so it's a one-way relationship, right? The the patient or the client is sharing deeply, deeply vulnerable things with the therapist, and the therapist is silent, blocked off, um, not sharing back. And that's kind of the experience of watching Bo Burnham in this YouTube version. I mean, inside was already very vulnerable, but this felt not only vulnerable, but disconnected, that not all of the pieces went together as well. There wasn't a narrative thread, Um, which can be like the first time someone tells you their story that may not be polished or even in a linear fashion. It may not make sense the first time you listen to it. Um, But that's one of the jobs that I do is to follow along with the person and help them to put things into order for themselves To help them make sense of what has happened to them particularly when we're working with trauma right trauma can be encoded the memories of it can be encoded in an entirely non-linear way and there may be parts that are missing parts that are in the wrong place we talked about this in the context of shutter island right trauma and memory are not friends (laughs) um and so one of the jobs of a therapist who's working with someone with trauma is to say hey Let's make sense of this together. Let's kind of untangle these threads and see if we can lay them out from end to end and try to make sense of what's happened. And that is, it's not 100% the feeling I got watching this outtakes, but I think it was pretty similar. Um, And one of the things that also (laughs) makes it unsettling is how often he looks into the camera, like directly into the camera to where it feels like he's making eye contact with you. And so I wanted to look up like, what happens when... You make eye contact for a long time because I've heard in like pop psychology stuff that if you make eye contact with one person for like more than 11 seconds, then you'll become like attracted to them. And I don't think that's true. I couldn't find any evidence of that. But I did find evidence that eye contact can be persuasive. So this study that was done by... Chen et al. in 2013 in the journal Psychological Science. That's where it was published. um, They looked at eye contact and um, persuasion. So like when I look you in the eye, am I able to persuade you to my side? Um, Not true. (laughs) They actually found that making eye contact with someone when you're trying to persuade them of a position makes it more likely that you disagree with them. So if I'm looking directly into your eyes and trying to convince you that peanut butter, smooth peanut butter is the best peanut butter, you're more likely to disagree with me and say, no, 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 it's crunchy. You're going to hold your position. So eye contact is bad for persuasion, but it is good for affiliation or affiliative behaviors, which means that when we make eye contact with other people, it tends to draw the other person in. It makes them want to feel close to us, to do things, to get closer to us, to affiliate with us. So. I took that as like is Bo Burnham when he makes eye contact with the audience is he trying to draw the audience in and persuade us that he's okay but in reality we may feel closer to him but not be persuaded whatever or whatever he's trying to persuade us of maybe that he's not okay. Um, and maybe it might be backfiring because of the amount of eye contact made. Now, I don't think that this study necessarily generalizes to eye contact between like a screen for per- a person on a screen and a person in real life. Uh, but I did think it was interesting and a cool tie-in. Um, and I just I just did wanna note how deeply unsettling it is when he's making direct eye contact. I felt the same way in inside, and it's more unsettling in the outtakes because it is this more raw footage. Um, especially for that that intense song toward the end, All Eyes on Me, uh, where it's it's not done yet. You can still see him working through how he wants it to look and the filters are unsettling plus he's making all this eye contact. It's it's a lot. Um and I think that is part of what is so enticing or what draws us into it is that it's this affiliative behavior, right? We want to like draw closer when we see this type of eye contact being offered up. And that's just my theory. (laughs) Another thing that I thought was interesting um, in this outtakes or in this video was one of the lyrics for the songs is he says, am I depressed or am I distressed? And I thought that was um, a really interesting observation from like a lay person, right? Someone who's not and mental health, and I'm here to say that it can be both right, you could be depressed and stressed, and that there is actually a bi directional relationship between stress and levels of depression. So, the more stressed you are, the more depressed you may be fe- feeling. But, on the other way, the more depressed you feel, the more stressed out you may feel. It kind of goes best way, both ways. Now, in this article by Hammond, in, published in 2005 in the annual, annual review of clinical psychology. This author reviewed some of the correlates or uh, predictive factors of depression and found that uh, stressors related to interpersonal loss, such as separating or breaking up with a partner, are more likely to be associated with the onset of a depressive episode. So when you, let's say you break up with your person and then the next few weeks you are feeling really down, it may be a depressive episode and it's potentially triggered by the stressor, right? So there's that one way of the relationship, the stress of the event triggers a, a more intense level of depression and that level of depression may then make the stressor feel more complicated, right? Maybe you have to meet up with your ex to exchange, like, stuff you left at each other's houses, and that is going to feel like an even bigger stressor because you're already at this, like, depressive stage. Now, Hammond pointed out that dependent events, which are events that we contribute to, so they're dependent on our actions, are likely to predict a depressive episode more so than independent events, which are events we don't have any impact on. So that would be like a, maybe like a natural disaster would be an independent event, whereas a dependent event could be something like getting dumped or dumping someone or even like getting fired from a job. So we where we play a role in that, right? And so when something like that has happened to us, we're we're going to be way more likely to be depressed or sad about the event than if we didn't directly contribute to it. And then add in the interpersonal factor... And now you've got yourself a, you know, soup, a little soup of depression, (laughs) Uh, which is then going to make stressors feel bigger, which may make your depression feel worse. And that's why people kind of get locked in like a, locked in the depression spiral, right? Because depression makes everything feel bigger. The big things make your depression worse on and on and on. And so you, that's where you might want some support and kind of pulling out of the cycle, maybe um, we know something like working with a therapist who can help you alter some of those behaviors and thought patterns, getting support on what like the crisis lines, the mental health lines that are linked uh, on my website, stuff like that, right? You need to get some help to interrupt the cycle. And I think that Bo Burnham in his, both of his specials, but particularly in this outtakes one, which is, you know, a little more vulnerable, we can kind of see this this cycle for him. And I think, although the project of creating inside was cathartic in a sense, maybe even healing for him, and he, he's working through these things, it was becoming a stressor, right? And a stressor that he was involved in, right? He chose to do this project and he, you know, he's actively participating in the stressor. But he's also dealing with depression. And so the stressor of finishing the project might have seemed like it was too big or it was getting bigger, out of control. He mentioned several times in the outtakes that he's done. He doesn't think it's ever going to get published or like, you know, put out there for people to see. He's really struggling with the completion of the project. And we also see him going back and forth between being more and less depressed. It's hard to tell when in the timeline we are, when you're watching the video, because although his hair changes and the environment changes, it's not linear. So, it's hard to directly correlate in his video how stressed he is with the project to how depressed he is. And of course, we're not diagnosing him, but he he talks about it, right? He says that he's he's been depressed. Uh, and so, uh, although... It can be hard to watch someone kind of going through this. We see him be in this like messy room that he can't quite seem to get a handle of. There's there's things all over the place. He even has a a section in the video where he makes a peanut butter sandwich, which I would call a depression peanut butter sandwich because he doesn't have any plates or silverware and it's just peanut butter on white bread. It's not even toasted, man. It's not even toasted bread. Um, We see that he's a man who is struggling with his mental health, um, but also in the process of a very intensive stressor. And I think that's an experience that a lot of people can relate to. And so I do think that it's important for people to see depictions of depression, but we also want to walk the line of not glorifying depression or glorifying mental health conditions. You don't have to be miserable, and stuck in a cycle of mental health issues to be creative. Like, Bo Burnham's special isn't, partic- isn't good just because he's dealing with depression. It is the story and part of him dealing with it, but it's not inherently good because he's depressed. In fact, I would argue part of why it is good is because he was able to interrupt this cycle enough to finish it, right? You can't be a creative genius if you can't finish your projects because of your mental health issues, and so I, I bring that up just in the context of. Very often you'll hear the conversation of like, artists are like tortured and all of them had mental health issues and the like. If they were to treat those mental health issues, they wouldn't have been as creative. Uh, and I I personally don't think that that's true. I think that you can be very creative without mental health struggles. I think that art and artistic projects can be a way to express what you're going through and can help you to process through trauma and mental health issues. Um, But I don't think that those things are always mutually exclusive. In order to make great art, you have to be like mentally unwell. Um, And that in the outtakes version that's posted on YouTube, there is the absence of like the resources that the Netflix version had. And I talked about this in episode four of like, is it enough to just slap the suicide hotline up at the end of an of a video that talks about like suicidal ideation and stuff? And like the hypocrisy of that, right? Because I just slap hotlines at the end of uh or my episode descriptions and on my website. But on YouTube, there isn't that. There there wasn't um resources associated. There wasn't a, a, a hotline posted uh at the end of the video. And I think that is what it's like when you're encountering content online that isn't necessarily moderated by a production company like yes youtube is a company is part of google and there are you know incentives for them to provide resources like i know if you watch videos about covid there's like a little box that'll be like this is misinformation here's what you really need to know about covid like there is some sort of like risk management that has to happen from a company. But in terms of like mental health, individual creators are not compelled to necessarily share resources or provide answers for what to do if you're in a mental health crisis. And I would argue that that might not necessarily be their job, particularly if they're not creators who have training or experience in mental health. Like, I don't know if it is Bo Burnham's responsibility to post those type of things especially if he doesn't know what is helpful like if he you know he may not know what are appropriate resources to share because that's not his thing he's not a mental health person or like a professional and I think that there are some even smaller creators that like may have even less access to resources or even less understanding of what to even offer their audience. And so you end up with vulnerable people seeking out content about mental health that may not be getting the resources that they need. And who should fix that, right? What What is the solution to that? Should YouTube be putting links to the crisis text line on every video that has any mention of mental health? Should creators be given like a orientation when they start to post um, about if you're posting about these topics, you need to post these links in your description. Does YouTube just add those links in for every video anyway? I don't know. I don't really know what the solution is to that, Um, but I think it's something to be noticed and acknowledged that is an emblematic of the experience of being online. It's the same thing like when you're on other websites that aren't like massive social media companies like on Instagram I know you'll get warnings if you're in certain hashtags especially if you're like in hashtags around disordered eating right they'll they'll pop up a little thing it'll say like do you want to proceed here's where you can click to get help right they'll do that which is like the bare minimum (laughs) that they could be doing about that Um, and on Reddit you can report people to like Reddit cares or whatever it's called if you believe that the person is posting content that is worrisome or for their mental health or hinting at suicidal ideation, so there like are those things. But if you're just like a person scrolling through like Tumblr or Facebook or even Twitter, and you just see someone posting about like their mental health, their suicidal thoughts, their this that and whatever there may be no context for it, right? There may be no follow-up. There may be no additional information provided or resources. It's just something that you encounter. Same thing in real life, right? If you're like talking to your friend and they tell you that they have had these thoughts, what are you going to do? Just like flash the 988 number and be like, you should call that now. Like, I think it's a difficult conversation and one thing where I think that mental health and psychology in general can do a could do a better job at providing resources and a more like public health um approach to suicide prevention and conversations around suicide Um, and that's why although i put content warnings on my episodes that you know if it's coming up or i'll be talking about it in a graphic way and i put resources in my bio i do want to still like keep having the conversation in these episodes. Um, and I want feedback from my listeners, right. Of like, what do you think would be useful for you? Uh, if you've gone through it or if you're on the mental health side, like, what do you think would be useful? Um, all of that was a really roundabout way to just say like, the internet is a wild place. <laughs> like, please be careful. Um, and you know, have like a, a safe place to go when the internet gets scary and that might be off of the internet um, or having a safe place on the internet to go to where you can check in with a community or get support because um, you, you know like we're encountering people out in the world um, on the internet and people are messy and have things that they're going through and they're going to tell you about it and you may not be prepared to deal with it and so that's just that's just kind of the reality. And that's what I, and not that I'm saying like Bo Burnham is like trauma dumping on us all. Um, I think it is part of him kind of paying homage to like the internet generation of like, a lot of us grew up on the internet and this is kind of how, how how it has always been. We've seen like really disturbing things, but it doesn't mean that it has to be that way forever. Okay, so a couple more things that I want to talk about um, in context of this episode is the Five Years song, which uh, I will play a clip of here. We are Chinese, I'm eating my dumplings. You reach over and you take my dumpling. You don't even say, do you mind or nothing? Why would you assume that you're entitled to a dumpling? So I look at you, you look back at me like, what the fuck did I do? If you really wanted some dim sum then, you really should have gotten some when we put in the order. You say you're a psycho, and I, I don't want to fight so. I absolutely loved it when this song came out. I thought it was so good and I was bummed it didn't make it into the finished special. Um, But I can kind of see why he cut it out. I think it contrasts too much with the song he has about sexting and focuses too much on his relationship when that wasn't a focus of the the overall special. Um, But I think that two things that I like about it. One thing, the first thing that I like about it is that it really demonstrates how mundane things in relationships become proxies for other fights. So like in the clip that we just listened to, it's, he's portraying a couple, like having an argument over someone taking a dumpling off of the other person's plate. Right. And that all of a sudden turning into this like huge thing about like, you always do this. You didn't even ask for permission why don't you plan ahead? Right. And like, now we're having a fight about this dumpling. And the reality is, is we're not fighting about the dumpling, right? We're, we're fighting about anything else. And we were just, all we needed was that hair trigger of someone taking a dumpling off your plate to to start this fight. And I I think about this concept that I learned in my couples counseling class, which was like this fantastic year-long course I took on doing couples counseling. And The professor of that course would talk about this idea of accommodating, that when we get into relationships, we figure out quite quickly that you kind of have to, if you don't want to have any conflict, which none of us want that, (laughs) if you don't want conflict, you accommodate the other person. So it can be little things, right? Like when you maybe first start dating your partner and you realize that they um, don't fold their clothes out of the laundry right they just like kind of have a pile of clean clothes that they're living out of (laughs) you maybe at the beginning think of that as like oh how cute what a free spirit they don't have time to fold their laundry they just live on the edge five years in you're like holy crap put your laundry away this is so annoying that we live in these like mountains of clothes but at the crucial point to mention it which was when you first learned about it five years ago you didn't mention it. You were like, this is, no, this is cool. I'm good with this. (laughs) And you weren't okay with it, right? You convinced yourself and your partner that you were okay with it. And now five, six, seven years later, it's rearing its its head again. Often we do this with much bigger issues, right? We start dating someone. We really want to have children. They don't want to have children. We say it'll be okay. It's fine that we have different opinions on this. I'm just, I just really like this person and I want to be in a relationship with them. And then you get into a very serious commitment with that person and four, five, six, seven years later, you're getting to the point where we got to really make a decision if we're going to have kids or not. And the other person is like, I told you from the beginning, I don't want to have kids and you said you were cool with that. So what are you going to do? Are you going to give up the relationship because this person doesn't want to have children? Or are you going to give up what you've been wanting, which is to have kids because you want to keep the relationship? And if you had Had this realization at the beginning of the relationship, it wouldn't be so painful. It's painful five years in to say, I have to leave this person because they don't want kids. It's still a little painful to say that after a month of dating, but it's way less painful and way less like sunk into the relationship. But we have this tendency as people to think it will work out. And if I'm just cool enough, like if I'm just good with what the other person is bringing to the table, then it'll all work out in my favor. But if the other person is also thinking that, then it's not going to work out in anybody's favor. And so when when couples come in for counseling, they usually come in and say like, "We're having difficulty communicating." And my professor would say that she would say, like they, "Everybody comes in and says they're having trouble communicating," and then you have a couple of sessions with them, and you're like, "Oh, yes, you're having trouble with communicating because." Every time you have an argument, you're actually arguing about this like accommodation issue, right? Whether it's about having kids raising your if you do have kids raising your kids in a religion or a particular way, uh, values about money, like are we spenders or savers? you're having an argument about those things every time you fight about the dumpling because you aren't able to get to the point where you can admit like this is really about. X, Y, or Z, the core issue, right? We're communicating around the core issue by picking these little fights because those little fights let off the pressure, right? If you think of your relationship as like a pressure cooker, the pressure is building around the big issue, right? Around the kids or the money or whatever. And every time I yell at you about a dumpling or killing a spider, I let a little bit of that steam out so that I can feel calm, Uh, But the problem is is that if you don't let all of the steam out, it's going to build back up again. The pressure will build back up again. And so you may think that you've been venting it for years because you've been having these little snippy snappy fights with each other, but the realization will come one day that you didn't vent enough steam and it will explode. And I know that sounds so like doom and gloom about relationships, but that's the reality of like when we end up seeing people in couples counseling is because they need help with that process. So that's the one thing I liked about it was that it it kind of really focuses on this um, process of how we tend to, as people in relationships, dance around big topics. The second thing that I liked about the song that I think is a little more implicit is that because he wrote this during like peak pandemic isolation time, I think it is a really good reflection of how people who were living together really hit a wall (laughs) of before the pandemic, if you lived with your partner, you probably had a break from them. Like maybe one or both of you went to work or to school. You had time outside of the house when you were going to the store, either separately, or maybe you were going to restaurants together on dates. You could get out, get out and about and be either distracted from each other or like literally separated from each other to have a break. And then when it became time for us to isolate together, uh, that it was no longer possible, right? We were like on top of each other. No breaks, no distractions, no filters. <laughs> um, and the fact that Bo Burnham wrote this song and made this video during this time, I think really highlights how for a lot of us in relationships this was kind of like a plateau time, right? Not, ne- not in a bad way, but it was kind of a time of like slowing down and maybe the only conversations we were having were about dumplings and who which bathroom to use and who's going to kill a spider. There wasn't a lot of distractions going on in the world. I mean, you could look at your phone all the time, but like even the those of us with the worst problems, their phones get tired of scrolling sometime, right? Like we didn't have a lot to distract ourselves from our um, our issues or our conflicts with our partners. And this very same professor I had who talked about accommodating, when the pandemic hit, I was in the course, and she said, you can't spell divorce without COVID. And she got us there. She really did. And she had predicted that there would be an increase in relationships ending after the isolation period particularly for the couples who decided to move in together right when the pandemic started. Now, I don't have any data about this. Um, I remember reading a while ago something that there might have been a slight uptick in like separations and divorces after the pandemic. Um, but my professor's like theory was that um, the like pressure of moving in together in a high stress situation, right. In- during COVID, it was stressful, especially at the beginning when we didn't know what was going on. Um, but of, like, living with each other for the first time or even living with each other one-on-one for the first time in a while without the distractions would put some of this pressure on relationships and almost, like, speed up that pressure cooker situation I described when talking about accommodation. And so people were thrown into that and it may have resulted in relationships ending. But what I like about Burnham's song is that although he's writing it from this place of, like, stuck in the emotional pressure cooker of like being confronted by your partner every day the core of the song the chorus is I'm still me you know still me still you still here right like we're still doing this we're not giving up five years in uh and I like that I like that the there is a little bit of hope there of like although he's describing these like really dumb fights that people get into in a relationship the core of the song is that we're still here it's we're still us we're still doing this we still here for each other, um and i I really like that that part of the song um, and I think it, although it is a little more implicit it's um it's clear. you can see the message in the song, yeah, so that was why I like that one. The last kind of piece that I want to talk about in regards to this video is he does a bit about a comedy podcast where it's two it's two versions of himself essentially making a podcast together and they're like anti-feminist white guys talking about cancel culture and wokeness and like literally complaining about being silenced and like you can't say what you used to say anymore with the irony of course being that they are on a platform where they are literally the only ones talking and now I have the understanding that Bo Burnham is making this to like poke fun At people who do this, obviously it's supposed to be a joke because it isn't a comedy special. But this one made me laugh very hard Um, because so often the way in which you hear or see people complaining about cancel culture are on platforms where that person literally is able to get their words out to many people at a time. I'm talking podcasts, I'm talking on Twitter, I'm talking on other parts of social media like Facebook. Even uh, our former president who got kicked off of all the social medias literally built himself a platform so that he could get his words out. You're not cancelled if you can still communicate your opinions about being cancelled to hundreds of thousands of people. It's It just doesn't make sense to me that you would think you've been cancelled when you still have the same access and sometimes we see these, these figures who complain about cancel culture increase their audience after being quote unquote canceled. Because now more people know your name because of all these stories about how you were canceled have come out. So I, I, I think Bo is telling us that this is silly. It's silly when people, especially people that come from areas of privilege, like whether they're white or male or have quite a bit of wealth, they get to sit up on these platforms and complain about how they've been canceled and shut down. And the reality is is that they haven't been because they still have their platform and they still have access to people to hear them, hear their stories, buy their merch, <laughs> all, all of that stuff. Um, and it's like, it's always these podcast guys that <laughs> are so anti-feminist and so anti-quote-unquote wokeness and it's like, my guy, don't you understand that, like, feminism is for you, too? Feminism is about making sure that everybody, regardless of their gender, race, ethnicity, background, economic status, that they all have access to the same stuff in society. That we all can live a happy, fulfilling, peaceful life and not be mean to each other. That's that's my happy sunshine version of feminism i mean feminism is in itself a political movement right that is focused on maintaining equality and righting wrongs of exploitation against certain groups you know whether that's in the global south whether that's in the u.s whether that's between genders or within genders like it's all about reducing inequality and increasing the ability of people to have like political agency and economic um like security, right? So inherently feminism should be about redistributing wealth and not having wealth be accumulated at the top where people don't have access to it. People of all genders. Uh so feminism is for you podcast bros. <laughs> it's it's for you. It's you can be a part of it. Uh it's not about attacking you or bringing you down, and in fact, a lot of you podcast bros probably don't even have the amount of capital that would need to be targeted right to ensure that everybody has access to the resources that they need like I know what we all make <laughs> for each download. It's not a lot. so let's not pretend like we're part of the the upper crust here just because uh, we have a platform but, also, on the other hand, you still have a port platform, my guy. I have a platform right now. I'm speaking on it. No one has canceled me. Um, and sometimes when you may think that you've been canceled, maybe it's just that no one liked your opinion. It's not about being canceled. It's just about people not liking your opinion or your content. So all that to say, I just thought that this skit he did was pretty funny. And it's just it will remain forever, forever ironic to me that the people who are the most loudly complaining about cancel culture are literally on platforms where they get to complain about cancel culture. It's just mwah, poetic justice. <laughs> okay, you guys, I think that's about all I had. I know this episode probably is a little less organized just because I think the content I'm talking about was a little less organized, a little less produced. Um, But I really, I did like it. I think it's a great companion to Inside, especially if you've watched inside and you want to know more if you want to know more about like his process of making things I think that it does highlight and show you kind of a behind the scenes look at what it's like to make an entire comedy special in your like guest house uh in a one bedroom it wasn't even a one bedroom it's like in a studio shed (laughs) um it's it's an interesting watch and there are some some good nuggets in there uh, I highly recommend also listening to my episode on Inside if you want to learn more about how psychology relates to the stuff in that special as well and hear more about that conversation about um, like suicide prevention lines. Uh, happy to answer any questions or talk about that more if you want to email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, those are linked in the episode description. I really appreciate it if you subscribe and review the podcast. It helps other people find it and get to share in the listening experience. Uh, But other than that, I just want to say thank you for listening to the whole episode. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.